and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Oh, been better. Yeah? Yeah. It's kind of a cloudy day. It's cold. Kind of the end of summer. I mean, it's, it's the second week of August. Well, you know, the season's wrapping up. Harvest is coming in. I mean... Spook times are on our doorstep. I see. I see how it is. Yes. It's August, which means it's almost autumn, which means it's almost Halloween. Exactly. It might as well just be Halloween right now. Right. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners would agree with you. (laughs) Because we're right. I am more of a calendar literalist. So what are we watching? Today, Sarah, we are watching Cry of the Werewolf from 1944. Oh, oh! I knew you were going to do that. How did you know I was going to do that? Because I know you. I just knew it was going (laughs) to happen. So what's this movie about? It's about werewolves, Sarah. I feel like werewolves are kind of the, like one of the big three Halloween monsters You know, like, there's vampires and, like, zombies and, like, werewolves. Sure. But in terms of, like, what we've seen so far for movies, it feels like there's the Wolfman. Yep. And then there's kind of some other shit. There's only been six films on our list that feature a werewolf. Okay. And so other than your Larry Talbots, what has there been... Um, so Refresh first, my memory. First was Wolf Blood, A Tale of the Forest. I mean, but do we really count Wolf Blood, though? Okay, well, here's the thing. Uh, werewolfery. Lycanthropy? Lycan- well, werewolfery is a word. They say it in Wolfman. <laughs> they sure do. Uh, it has never really been fully defined. Mm. So... There are cases in terms of, like, literature or whatever where you could say that there are werewolves in the sense that there's someone who turns into a wolf, but that's not quite what werewolf means today. Mm, The science is still out. (laughs) So, like, in wolf blood, there's no werewolf Larry Talbot style. Um, The werewolfery that we see is basically through transfusions. And it's really just this guy fearing he's turning into a wolf, and it's an actual wolf. Yeah, he had a blood transfusion from a wolf. Yeah. We would see this same kind of, like, transfusion thing pop up in 1942's The Mad Monster, where George Zuko wants to create a race of super soldiers of werewolves. Right, to fight the Nazis. And, uh, yeah, he uses, like, wolf blood gives it as a transfusion to a guy who then turns into a werewolf. Right. But this is more of like half man, half wolf type of deal, not turning into an actual wolf. Right. It's it's closer to your islands of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. Yeah, and that's also kind of why, I don't know if you want to consider like shape-shifting just into a wolf part of the werewolf canon, I guess. 
because, like, they've just been called werewolves. Like, Guy Endor's book, Werewolf of Paris, is published in 1933, and it features a guy who is, like, half-wolf. He avoids turning by drinking blood. But then, like, if you want to look beyond... If you want to look earlier than 1933, there's, like, the 12th century story from Marie de France called Bisclavray, where it's a guy who turns into a wolf, like an actual wolf, for three days, and then he needs his actual clothes in order to turn back into a man. But that's still considered part of the werewolf canon. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Because, like, is a man-wolf hybrid, like you see in Mad Monster, is that a werewolf, Mm -hmm. right? Or if I'm, I don't know, Merlin, and I shapeshift into a wolf... Is Merlin a werewolf? Yeah. I feel like the key element to our modern understanding of werewolves is the idea of, like, there being a curse. Like, it's a specific curse. Yeah. The first time we kind of saw a bit of that curse was in 1935's Werewolf of London. Mm-hmm. Um, where, not so much a curse in the sense that, like, I've been cursed by someone, but it, w- it had that tragic nature to it. <laughs> This guy gets infected um, from a bite, mm-hmm. um, and he's desperate to try to find a cure, because every time he turns on a full moon, he has to kill someone. Right. Um, and the only cure is this f- fictional flower called the Marifaza plant. But there we have the ideas of, like, you become a werewolf because you got bit by a werewolf, and you're going to transform at the full moon, which are two pretty key modern notions. Yeah, and in that episode, uh, episode 50, we actually talked a little bit about um, how they're trying to solidify the werewolf myth by transposing elements from Jekyll and Hyde, Mm -hmm. of like not wanting to turn, uh, doing evil in this form, um, and dying at the end. (laughs) Less than a decade after Werewolf of London, we would get The Wolfman, Episode 88, if you want to take a listen. And that is currently our highest-ranking werewolf film at number 15. Right. Which makes sense. Not only does it solidify the werewolf canon... Right. ...and what it means to be a werewolf, uh, it also really solidifies the tropes that go along with the idea of shape-shifting. And we see those tropes continue into, like, The Incredible Hulk, for example. Yeah, for sure. Um, So with The Wolfman... 1942, uh, we get the idea of um, transforming during the autumn moon. Mm -hmm. You still are infected through a bite, which makes sense, because the idea of wolves having rabies is kind of the origin of these fears. It's not so much that Larry Talbot is cursed by Romani in the town, um, but they seem to have the only information as to how to help, or at least know what this is. Right, it's it's definitely tied to their culture in the universe of the Wolfman. Yeah. Um, Now, in this case, there is no cure, um, and Talbot is desperate to try to find a cure, and we see that desperation continue in its sequel, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, in 1943. Nothing really changes in terms of the werewolf canon, except that now uh, it's just whenever there is a full moon, not just an autumn moon. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's also from Wolfman that we get the, like, silver being the only thing that can harm a werewolf idea. 
Yeah, um, which is kind of neat. So Werewolf of London, the guy gets shot by a regular bullet and he dies. Mm -hmm. But it's only in Wolfman where um, they talk about silver bullets um, and actually Talbot is ended, quote-unquote destroyed, uh, at the end when um, he gets beaten with the with the silver handle of a cane. Yeah. Since The Wolfman in 1942, that same year, we had The Mad Monster, which, as I explained, was based on transfusions. 1943 had Frankenstein meets The Wolfman. But a movie that doesn't have werewolf or wolfman in the title, but does feature a werewolf that we've seen is 1943's The Return of the Vampire. True. And I bring this up only because there's a werewolf that doesn't fit into the established tropes of werewolfery, um, but he is quite heavily featured in that movie. So yeah. that features um, the character named Andreas. Uh, he is kind of the Renfield uh, person in this movie, but when he gets put into the trance and is following the vampire's orders, he turns into a wolfman. Um, he doesn't seem to have any kind of wolf-like tendencies besides like the hair and... Uh, you know, the way he walks, but he's not, like, you know, needing to kill. He's not uh, trying to find a cure. He doesn't right. turn back and forth. It's just, yeah, it's just his alt mode. Exactly. But as soon as that trance is broken, he reverts back to his humanoid form, and that's his consistent form until he goes back into the trance. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting there is Return of the Vampire came from Columbia Studios, so I wonder at this very early stage, how much there was a fear of like, oh, well, Universal created those werewolf rules, so we have to have different werewolf rules. Like a fear about, because they weren't actually folklore rules, they were invented for this movie, like, does Universal have, you know, a copyright on these specific ideas? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, because nothing had really solidified what it meant to be a werewolf until Universal... Universal's films, even going back to the 35 Werewolf of London, we mm -hmm. see some of the seeds being planted that would morph into stuff in The Wolfman. Right. Now, what is fairly consistent in most of these is the tragedy that always seems to go with werewolfery. Um, I like the idea of saying werewolfery. I'm just going to keep saying it. In Wolf Blood, um, you know, there are these murders happening, and this guy is worried that he's the one doing it um, when he's in a wolf form. Werewolf of London, he is, like, racked with guilt that he has to kill when he's a werewolf, um, and he fears hurting the woman he loves. The Wolfman, Larry Talbot, that's really all you have to say with him. Um, the Mad Monster, it's, like, kind of a tragedy for, like, not on the part of the person being turned into a wolfman, because he's just kind of like the, the village idiot, basically. Mm -hmm. So you feel sorry for him. It's more about pitying him rather than him being tr a tragic figure in and of himself, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then with Return of the Vampire, the tragedy is how the character repeatedly succumbs to evil. Right. He loses agency to the vampire that has control over him. Yeah. And I just think it's interesting between like Return of the Vampire's werewolf and Larry Talbot where Wolfman, um, where Larry Talbot is like desperate to find a cure and rid himself of this curse and is taking like an active point in 
trying to cure himself. Whereas Andreas, his agency is literally literally taken away, like you've just said. Like, I think that's kind of interesting. Would you consider the monster in The Undying Monster to be a werewolf? Undying Monster was the one that was, like, in England, and there was a dark old house and, like, an old family, and it's the Moors, and people are getting killed on the Moors, and they bring in, like, this detective and his, like, girl sidekick to, like, figure out what's going on, and the ending turns out that to be, like, that the dude who owns the manor house or whatever is turning into this big hairy monster, and, like, at the end, he's, like, hanging off the cliff, and, like, the cops shine the light on his face, and it's all hairy or whatever. You know what? I remember us watching that. I don't remember a werewolf in it at all. Well, so that's why I kind of ask, right? But, like, the monster that he turns into... I mean, he's in, like, full clothes. It's definitely that, like, Larry Talbot-style thing. But his face is all fur. Like, that's how they render him in monster form. I don't think they ever use the word, like, wolf or werewolf. It ended up on the miscellaneous part of the list because we felt it was more of like, about these detectives solving the mystery than about, like, it was more of a Hound of the Baskervilles rather than a Wolfman. Yeah, I mean, so it came out in 42, but after the Wolfman. Yes. But I don't know if they would have had enough time to, like, be ripping off the Wolfman, if I mean, you know a, what I mean. A lot of people ripped off Wolfman really quickly because Wolfman was so successful. I mean, even cat people started out as, let's rip off Wolfman. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really touch on any of the ripping off Wolfman genre of movies where there's just a shapeshifter yeah. type thing. I yeah. thought that would be like a whole different conversation. For sure. Um, I'm not sure if I would consider The Undying Monster like that because it's more about... What's interesting is like there's not a lot of agency applied to the creature. Like when he goes into wolf mode, he literally is like a wild animal. Like, I remember him, like, killing his dog and ripping yes. into his own dog. Yeah. You know, so it's almost like the animal instincts take over. Yeah. So I feel like that's almost like a step back before the wolfman kind of agency type of werewolfery that we mm. see, and more towards the type of werewolves we see when it comes to transfusions, where it's more animalistic, there's not as much human quality, um... I think it retains that central idea of, like, tragedy and also the idea of it being, like, a curse. It's just, in his case, if I remember correctly, it was, like, a pass-down-the-family kind of curse. Yeah, that, that sounds right. So, originally, Cry of the Werewolf was actually intended to be a direct sequel to Return of the Vampire, titled Bride of the Vampire. <laughs> uh, but along the way, vampirism was swapped out for lycanthropy. Uh, although, the female lead was retained, because the whole point of the movie was always to be a starring vehicle for Nina Folk, who had debuted as sort of the, like, young ingenue in Return of the Vampire. So if you remember, Return of the Vampire had, like, this older lady vampire killer after Bela Lugosi, and Bela Lugosi was going after her, like, niece or whatever... And that was Nina Folk. So the, after that movie, Columbia wanted to feature her in a starring role. Uh, so she is the lead here. And by featuring a female werewolf, Columbia kind of intended to cash in on the success of both the Wolfman and Cat People. 
Sure. Even if they were, you know, a few years late on the trend for (laughs) both of those. We've talked in the past how it makes more sense for werewolves to be women. Yes. Because of the tying of menstruation and the moon cycles. Yes, it's why Ginger Snaps is the best one. Yeah, but it's going to be many years before we get to Ginger Snaps. Very true. Maybe this is like proto-Ginger Snaps. We'll see. So the script here is by Griffin J. and Charles O'Neill, both of whom have written horror before. Uh, Jay was sort of Universal's number two guy when Kurt Siedmack wasn't an option, and he wrote or co-wrote The Mummy's Tomb, Captive Wild Woman, Return of the Vampire, and The Mummy's Ghost. Charles O'Neill had written the first draft of The Seventh Victim, before that was reworked by DeWitt Bodine and Val Luton. The film would be the directorial debut for Harry Levin, who had signed on with Columbia as a dialogue director, which is essentially like a voice coach. Okay. Um... And he had signed on the year earlier with Columbia after having a long career as a stage director. He was 35 years old when he was promoted to feature film directing, uh, and this was his first feature film. Cinematography, meanwhile, was by L. William O'Connell, who had also shot Return of the Vampire, but is probably most well-known for shooting the original 1931 Scarface. Okay, cool. So I talked quite a bit about Nina Folk in our episode on Return of the Vampire. That's episode 110, if you want to go back and listen. Uh, But I'll repeat some of the story here, since she's the star in this one. So Nina Folk was born in 1924 in the Netherlands to an American singer mother and a Dutch conductor father. Uh, When her parents divorced, she moved with her mother to New York City, and studied acting under Lee Strasberg at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. She signed a contract with Columbia at age 19, and debuted in Return of the Vampire the same year. She appeared in a number of Columbia film noirs throughout the 1940s, and her breakout role was 1951's An American in Paris, which won Best Picture. She played Moses's foster mother in 1956's The Ten Commandments, and she was nominated for an Oscar for her role in Executive Order, and also appeared in 1960's Spartacus. From the 1960s onwards, she taught courses on how to direct actors at USC Film School. Her first marriage was actually to James Lipton of Inside the Actors Studio. Okay. Uh, But she ultimately married three times before her death in 2008. Her romantic opposite in this movie is played by actor... Steve Crane. Why do you say actor like that? So Steve Crane was born in 1916 in Crawfordsville, Indiana, to the owners of a mom-and-pop cigar store. He graduated with a B.A. in business in 1937, married a local girl, and took over the family store. In 1942, Crane met 21-year-old Hollywood sex symbol Lana Turner, at a restaurant in town while she was doing, like, a countrywide USO tour. She was fresh from her divorce to big band leader Artie Shaw and fell in love with Crane. Oh, no. Their relationship made tabloid headlines, and Turner became pregnant. Oh, boy. So Crane divorced his wife and sold the store and came out to Hollywood to live with Turner and try his hand at acting. He signed to uh, Columbia Pictures and made three films with them, 
of which Cry of the Werewolf was the first. Okay. So his very first film. Mm Mm-hmm. His daughter, Cheryl Crane, was born July 25th, 1943. That's his daughter with Lana Turner. But by 1944, he and Turner had divorced. Uh, Apparently due to his gambling problems, but also because he ended up losing his contract at Columbia because he began seeing a Polish ballerina who was actually the current mistress of Columbia studio head Harry Cohn. Aye, okay. And that sort of ended Crane's time at the studio and his acting career in general. Yeah. So three movies at Columbia from 1943 to 1945 is this guy's whole career. Will we be seeing the other two films? No. No? Okay. So, uh, quickly running down some other people who appear in the cast here. Uh, there's Awesome Masson, who is a Danish actress who was born in Copenhagen in 1914 and came to the U.S. in 1937 and was often sort of cast as femme fatales. Veteran actress Blanche Yurka also appears in this film. She was born in 1887 and had a successful career on the New York stage in the early 20th century, including opposite John Barrymore in a 1922 production of Hamlet. She didn't appear on film until age 47 in 1935's A Tale of Two Cities. Her role in that film was originally supposed to go to Val Luton's aunt, Ala Natsumova, but Natsumova turned the role down and insisted that Yurka be cast instead. Mm. Uh, Blanche Yurka passed away in 1974. We just saw Barton McLean in last week's episode as a cop, and he appears in another police officer role here, uh, the creatively named character Lieutenant Barry Lane. <laughs> One last person in the cast I do want to highlight is Fritz Lieber Sr., who has a minor role as a doctor. Uh, Lieber was born in 1882, and he had a long acting career, initially on stage, and then in silent, and finally in sound film. But I mainly point him out because his son, Fritz Lieber Jr., became an immensely influential sci-fi and fantasy author who coined the term sword and sorcery to describe the genre that he, Robert E. Howard, and Michael Moorcock developed. That's cool. Yeah, he has a, a series, um, what's it, Fafir and the Grey Mouser, that is like a huge influence on D&D and how the like barbarian and rogue classes work. That's neat, yeah. So Cry of the Werewolf was released on August 17th, 1944, on a double feature with The Soul of a Monster, which we will be watching for next week's episode. <laughs> Columbia billed the two films as the Supernatural Double Horror Show. <laughs> we, we should be watching this as a double feature, if that's how they were released. Yeah, but, like, that's going to be too much to cover in, like, a single episode. I guess. We'll be covering the, you know, the other half of the double feature next week. So, how are we watching Cry of the Werewolf? Cry of the Werewolf fared poorly, at the box office. Even with this double feature? Yes. Supernatural, and it, crazy, uh, all-you-can-eat buffet of horror. And it fared even worse with critics. Oh, no. Uh, so, Columbia allowed the copyright to lapse, and Cry of the Werewolf is not currently available on, like, an official home video release anywhere. Uh, there are several DVD releases by several, like, bargain bin companies uh, and it is currently on our YouTube playlist 
uh, due to its public domain status. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com and find our YouTube playlist there. While you're at the website, if you do want to check out the past episodes on werewolves, um, it would be episode 15 for Wolfblood, episode 50 for Werewolf of London, episode 88 for The Wolfman, episode 92 for The Mad Monster, episode 97 for The Undying Monster, episode 102 for Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, and lastly, episode 110 for The Return of the Vampire. All right. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Cry of the Werewolf from 1944, directed by Henry Levin. See you on the other side, everyone. Back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Cry of the Werewolf from 1944, directed by Henry Levin. Ben, what did you think? I think we're going to have to talk it out later. Yeah. Yeah. This movie racist. I mean, yes, but I mean, it's 1944. Sure. We're gonna have still to, We're going to have to talk some stuff out later. Yeah. What's the story? Well, we open in a house-turned-museum, following the tour guide as he sets the mood and gives a little bit of a lecture on the contents of the museum, uh, which are on vampirism, werewolfism, and voodooism. Mm-hmm. This museum is in New Orleans, and it's run by Dr. Charles Morris, who is researching someone known as Marie Latour, who was a voodoo queen and purported werewolf. He believes he's found her final resting place in a crypt beneath the house itself, because this is the house of Marie Latour. Morris has summoned his son, Bob, from Washington to join him for the discovery but before Bob can arrive, the doctor is killed by a wolf in the crypts. The police suspect the assistant, Elsa, because she's from Transylvania, and they found female fingerprints at the scene of the crime. Now, Elsa's fingerprints don't match the fingerprints found at the scene of the crime, but I also wonder how, like, can you tell Someone's sex from their um, fingerprints? You can make generalizations based on, like, the size of the hand and the size of the prints. Like, generalizations of, like, oh, usually a woman's hands are smaller or thinner, etc. Um, so I, I can buy that part that, like, a, a crime lab doctor would be like, oh, yeah, these are probably a woman's prints. Okay. Um, but, yes, they, they don't match Elsa's, to much to the consternation of the police detective. Meanwhile, Bob and Elsa, now engaged, are trying to restore the notes that were burned after the murder. And after they put some of the notes together, they head to the local Romani tribe, led by Princess Celeste, who is played by Nina Folk, clearly a white woman. Yes. I mean, all yes. 
So the audience learns that Celeste is the daughter of Marie Latour. Both are werewolves, implying that it's a hereditary mm-hmm. trait. Um, now, because Celeste leads the tribe and her mother led the tribe, it could also be uh, not just passed down through bloodlines, but through whoever rules the tribe, I guess. Right. But uh, they seem to imply that it's more of the mother-daughter relationship. Yeah. We do get some scenes of stalking and murders by wolves. The climax comes when Celeste corners Elsa and puts her in a trance, saying that now you'll be my sister, you'll also be a daughter of the werewolf, and will scorn men. The police track Celeste slash the wolf into the house. There's a bit of a, a shootout, and Celeste is injured. Um, she returns to the room where Bob is with Elsa, and they have kind of a moment of, like, Celeste trying to influence her power on Elsa, saying, take the gun, shoot Bob, and Bob being like, no, it's me, why shoot me? And just kind of like a back and forth. It's like that scene in movies where two different people try to get a pet to go to one or the other, except that it's a woman with a gun. Yeah. Um, Now, Elsa doesn't actually get to choose because Celeste succumbs to her wounds and dies. So Elsa snaps out of her trance, Bob is saved, the crimes are solved, etc. The end. So, I mean, there's a lot that you sort of... Skipped. You skipped basically all of the middle of the movie there, but I think that shows to a certain extent, like, how weak the plotting is in this movie. So before we go into discussion, uh, I just want to clarify something. So, Carve the Werewolf conflates voodooism, werewolfism, and Bomani culture, basically. Okay, I I slightly disagree with you on this, but okay. Okay, well, it just kind of, like, mixes it all together. Uh, So I just want to, like, put this out there. Um, Also, because this is kind of the first time that we're really coming into more of the New Orleans, Louisiana-type voodoo. Mm. We've had some instances of it in the past, especially with uh, Son of Dracula. Right. But um, we haven't really had it be, like, the main premise of the movie. New Orleans voodoo, also called Louisiana voodoo, is unique and slightly different from the Haitian voodoo that we've discussed in the past, um, mainly in episode 32 on White Zombie. In that episode, I kind of explained how voodoo is a bit of a Creole religion, not only in the sense that it takes other parts of the local culture, other religions, and absorbs them, but also in the sense that voodoo originates from basically West Africa, which is the main place where uh, Africans were taken into the slave trade. So it becomes a very different religion based on where those slaves went. So uh, when they ended up in Haiti, that flavor, basically, of voodoo is different than Louisiana voodoo. They are similar, but um, some of the main differences is Louisiana voodoo has more of an emphasis on voodoo dolls, uh, what are called gri Amulets, which are just basically amulets of protection. Um, They have matriarchal queens, and uh, they have a lot of emphasis on this one particular spirit that they call Le Grand Zombie, um, a.k.a. Dambala, 
who is kind of known in Haitian voodoo um, as, like, the Skyfather spirit. One thing that we've mentioned way, way, way back in episode 15 on wolf blood um, is the Lugaru, which is a specific kind of flavor of werewolf. Um, The Lugaru is specific to, like, Métis culture here in Canada, especially eastern Canada. Um, The Rougarou, so just, like, with an R instead of an L, is kind of the uh, Cajun uh, werewolf-style legend. Yeah, the impression I got when we looked at it the first time was that it was a French flavor, and so there were different, like, sub-flavors of it in these different areas of French colonialism. Exactly, yeah. Um, So in Louisiana, we have the Rougarou described as having a human body and the head of a wolf, so think kind of like the wolfman style, um, who stalks the swamps. Because it originates with French culture, I guess, um, the Rougarou is actually more, like... Catholic than anything else, yeah. In the sense that it specifically hunts down Catholics who don't follow the rules of Lent. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a blood sucking element, so kind of an overlap with vampires there. And the curse comes from witches uh, who curse you for like not follow- following the rules of Lent. Um, so as far as this film's accuracy when it comes to uh, werewolves, at least like canthropy in Louisiana. Um, as well as voodoo in Louisiana, um, this film is not accurate. <laughs> well, see, this is the thing. Like, I don't think... I think you are completely right that the movie isn't accurate. But I also don't think that this movie tried at all. Like, no one says the words Lugaru or Rougarou in here. Like, I don't think the writers of this movie even knew any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? If there's a thing that this movie is imitating... It's not any kind of legitimate Louisiana-based folklore. It's the folklore of universal monster movies. Sure. Like, that's fair. I agree that I don't think that they are trying. But I think one of the biggest factors that makes this movie upsetting Mm -hmm. and, for lack of a better word, problematic, is the way that they mix in the idea of Romani tribes as practitioners of voodoo and the leaders being werewolves. Yes, I, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I think you and I are, are approaching the same problem from different angles. Okay. Because I think, at least from my watching of the movie, the voodoo stuff was a complete misnomer. Like, mm. really doesn't have any... Like, nobody says the word voodoo after the first five minutes of the movie. The... Marie Latour Museum has three displays, and the impression you get is that Dr. Morris, who ran the museum, is like a, or was like a Van Helsing type, like a a monster (laughs) hunter, basically, because there's a room about vampirism that's like, oh, here's how vampirism works. There's a room about voodoo, and in that room, when they show it to you on the museum, they don't say, this is some Louisiana voodoo from the local bayou. They say this is some shit the doctor went to the West Indies to go find. So it's specifically Haitian voodoo. And then there's a third room that's, this is the werewolf room about Marie Latour. But I think you're right in identifying the kind of (sighs) tortured and convoluted backstory here as being a major flaw in this movie. Because 
I think what it calls out for is it it really shows the um, the value of the research that, like, say, Val Luton would do for a movie. Mm-hmm. Or even the research we saw for White Zombie. Right. Because what I'm seeing here is I don't really feel like, to be honest, there's a connection being made between Voodoo and Romani so much as there's something going on here where it's like, okay, well, Romani and, you know, the Roma and werewolves are connected because they were connected in Wolfman. And so then we're going to put it, you know, in this other setting, and it just starts to get very weird and incongruous. The only thing that really seemed to directly say to me that this movie was depicting the Roma as using voodoo stuff is that they are depicted using, like, some like dolls mm-hmm. in a bunch of different scenes. Which there's I think a, Elsa calls um like a devil doll and yeah, there's a love, a love doll. doll. But this movie tries to not this movie does not say, oh, these are voodoo dolls. They explicitly try to play those dolls off as being a Transylvanian thing and part of that culture. And they even explicitly say, oh, these aren't like the dolls we have in the voodoo display. So I think the connection that you're seeing between voodoo and the Roma here is very tenuous. But I will 100% agree that this movie is depicting the Roma as something they are not. Mm -hmm. And similar to our discussion on Wolfman, so in this movie they use the word gypsy. And I think that if there is a use in 2019 for the word gypsy, it might be as a way to critically discuss whatever these people are. Because they're not Roma. They are so Mm -hmm. far from what Roma are, that they are basically a fictional construct. And at that point, I find the word gypsy becomes useful to explicitly talk about the fictional construct that is these people, and they are the same kind of fictional construct you see pop up in, you know, Wolfman and other places. For one thing, the Roma here are, I mean, listen, I have no idea if there are Roma in... Louisiana. I don't know. Maybe there are. There are a good number of Roma in the United States. I will say that the the imagery of a bunch of like traditional Eastern European Universal Studios ass horse drawn carriages and like people in like you know Eastern European peasant style garb hanging out in the bayou really struck me as very, like, bizarrely incongruous. There was just something there that hit my brain that was like, um, okay. Yeah, you'd think that they would change, like, their clothing, because there's a lot more mosquitoes in the bayou. Yeah, it's just... You you would change something. Yeah. Uh, But explicitly, they are also stated as practicing, like, their own religion, which they don't. Um, The implication here is that this tribe of Roma, who have a specific name, but it's made up, so it doesn't matter. They are the uh, Troyega. The Troyega in this movie are implied to have um, emigrated to the United States from Transylvania. And the reason I say that is because Elsa, who's not Roma, but is from Transylvania, is like, oh yeah, I recognize this from the old country. And there's another person who works at Dr. Morris's museum, the janitor, Jan Spavero, who is a member of the Troyega and is explicitly said to be Transylvanian as well. Mm -hmm. If they're Transylvanian Roma, 
they are Orthodox Christians, like 90% chance. Um, they will have their own like beliefs and their own practices, but they're not like, these guys are explicitly stated in this movie to be devil worshippers. And uh, Celeste is their gypsy princess, and she's also the high priestess. Two things that you don't have. <laughs> like, there's no such thing as a gypsy princess. That makes no sense. That's meaningless. And, like, that she's a high priestess. Like, that's not a thing. So if, if there's any part of this movie that is conflating, like, voodoo stuff and uh, Romani stuff, that's also maybe definitely a spot. Because the idea that, like, her mom was queen of the gypsies is, like, a completely made-up bit of nonsense. Yeah. And, like... It's probably coming from the fact that there are voodoo queens. I think the way this sort of mutated is that, like, voodoo is a pretty explicitly a black thing. Yes. Right? And whereas, like, because of the Universal Monster movies, werewolves are, like, an Eastern European thing. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so now it's this, you know, this... Uh, gypsy tribe in Louisiana so that they're like some weird conflation of both but it's not made explicit like they never say like oh yeah they're practicing voodoo right what is weird is the entire the entire Marie Latour story is this like bizarrely overblown backstory so she is like this rich French American plantation owner Right? Like, she has this big plantation uh, mansion, and she has all these, you know, African-American servants in the flashback scene that we get. Yeah. And her husband finds out she's a werewolf, so she kills him. Then she flees into the bayou, and from what the movie kind of barely explains, she then joins the Troyega, which, I will point out, you can join uh, the Roma. That's a thing that is possible. But then she joins the Troyega, somehow I guess becomes their queen? I mean, I guess if you're a werewolf, you can start making demands. <laughs> and then she has her daughter declared like the princess slash high priestess. It's just, it's just a lot. Yeah. And I think it would have come across better if it had been a little bit better researched. I think there was a way to do this story that would have worked, either by just not involving um, Romani culture at all. Like, it would have been even more interesting and a more different flavor to just have it be like a voodoo werewolf or something, right? But I think what stopped them there was not just the existing cultural link between the Roma and werewolves that had been created by Wolfman, but also the fact that if it was a straight-up voodoo thing, your lead character would have been black. And I think having, like, a lead black female villain was something that you just weren't going to get in a movie in 1944. And, side note, you probably didn't want to get in 1944 either. Like, I don't think I would want to see a 1940s movie with a lead female black villain. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the way that they would write her would just be terrible. Um, um, yes, I agree that uh, we would need to get that step. I also wonder if they... Because, as you've kind of pointed out, like, yeah, they bring in voodoo, but then they also kind of, like, name drop it and then skirt around it. Yes. And voodoo has been 
very explicitly tied to zombies. Right. In all of the horror movies that we've watched. So I can see why maybe someone started to fight that, and then they were told, no, you're going to confuse people. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it, I think it's different different monsters in the classic Hollywood um, monster pantheon are tied to different racism, right? Yeah. Like, like, mummies are Egyptian, werewolves are Romani, uh, zombies are voodoo. Like, it's, it's very specific things. Vampires are Christian. Like, because the whole cross and everything, like, none of that stuff makes any sense if you divorce vampires from Christian culture, right? Yeah. So there's, there's, there are very specific cultural touchstones that these monsters have in these movies. I think you're 100% on the mark. Mm-hmm. Another example of the complete lack of research done here is our two non-Romani Transylvanian characters are named Elsa Chauvet and Jan Spavero. So that's a... Uh, Elsa Chauvet, that's a Scandinavian first name and a French last name. And then Jan Spavero, that's a Dutch first name and an Italian last name. Like, just no effort was made here at all is, I guess, the point oh, I'm yeah. trying to make, right? You, yeah, you've definitely definitely highlighted its lacking. And the thing is, and, and here's where I kind of loop back to agreeing with you about the harm this movie does. Mm-hmm. The way that Roma are depicted in this movie is way more harmful, in my opinion, than the way they've been depicted in the Universal movies. They are both equally inaccurate. They are both equally what I would call gypsies, this fictional bullshit culture that does not exist. But in the Wolfman movies, they're sort of just this flavor element that grants exposition and makes everything feel, you know, oh, the old country and blah. Here, they're explicitly portrayed as evil devil worshippers. Yes. And what I found particularly upsetting about that in this context is that these are explicitly Transylvanian Romani people in a movie in 1944 where in the real Transylvania at this time, Roma were being executed in Nazi-allied Romanian-run concentration camps. Yeah, that's also, like, my big problem with it as well. Like, I don't think the people making this movie explicitly knew that that kind of extermination effort was being made. No, and I don't think they were being explicitly malicious in this either. I think to the screenwriters of this movie, you know, and I've said this before, these people were just as much a fictional construct as werewolves and vampires and mummies. Like, gypsies were treated in Hollywood movies of this period, and honestly, till a shockingly recent time, as basically being something you'd pull out of the monster manual in D&D. Like, just as this fictional thing that we can just tell stories about, and it doesn't connect to anything real. And the lack of research done by the people who made this movie, I mean, bare minimum research, tells me that, like, the writers writing this movie did not think about any of that. So there's no malicious intent because there isn't enough thought even being put into it. You know, to have malicious intent against a group, you'd have to believe that group were real people. And I don't think the writers of this movie even thought of these people as being real. Yeah. At the same time, like, they know... 
Like, the, the reason that Elsa is in America mm-hmm. is, like she says, that Dr. Morris helped her immigrate because shit, shit was going to go down in Transylvania. Yeah. They knew it was going to go to shit. And then they throw these other immigrants out under the bus. Mm-hmm. Just because, like, they aren't the right kind of immigrants. Well, and the other problem, too, is, like, because, you know, you can justify a bunch of stuff. You can say, well, it's not specifically all you know, Romani tribes, it's this specific, the Troyega are the ones who are the, you know, evil devil worshippers or whatever. And I, you know, there are a bunch of justifications you can make. And like I said, I think there wasn't malicious intent in the hearts of the writers. But I think what makes it doubly troubling for me is these kind of stereotypes of Romani as, like, evil devil worshippers are the specific kind of stereotypes that mm-hmm. were behind mm-hmm. anti- Roma sentiment in Europe for hundreds of years, which led to things like the, uh, you know, attempted extermination of the Roma in Europe in World War II, right? Yeah. It's it's playing into the very specific stereotypes, right? Like, it's not... Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's why, like, I'm not a fan of this movie. I think, like, they, they could have had a little bit of something with having the villain be this, like female werewolf because we haven't seen that before the closest is like cat people but they they kind of botched that well, like let's... out of nowhere she like so Celeste they try to make her sympathetic with some drop away line of like I can never love mm-hmm. whether that's because she's a werewolf whether that's because she's like the princess the priestess, or whatever or whatever like that's not specified. But she's like, so I'll make you, Elsa, part of our tribe, a sister of mine, so you can't love him either. And there's something about female villains that I always like when they're just like, yeah, fuck men. Well, yeah, that's your own particular biases <laughs> coming in. Um, but the way that they justify it here is like, oh, well, she'll never be able to love, so... Poor Celeste. Well, okay, but I, I agree with what you're saying, but I also think it's less purposeful. Like you're you're giving it too. You're I'm giving it too much credit. Like you're you're giving it too much credit, but you are also still right in your um, criticism. Like swerving away from the racism, I, I do want to talk more in depth about the actual movie because I feel like we haven't actually really been talking about the movie. And, you know, in talking about this love triangle subplot, you know, there was stuff that you, in the plot summary that you, you kind of skipped over, but Morris, that is Bob, goes to the Romani camp at one point. Um, and he's pretty convinced that they're behind the death of his father. He kind of gets charmed by Celeste a bit. And, um, this is where it comes out like, oh, she's not allowed to, like, love people. And, oh, isn't your fiancé so lucky she gets to be with you or whatever. And he comes home from that scene to Elsa, who he tells, like, oh, yeah, they're just a bunch of sweet, innocent people. They're all fine. And Elsa doesn't believe him, which, watching the movie, to me, really spoke more to the fact that she's Romanian and the prejudice against Romani people there is very strong. But turns out she's right. Because uh, Bob has, like, a love doll in his pocket that has, like, cast, 
you know, like a charm person spell on him so that he'll be more inclined to like Celeste, right? So there's this implied love triangle thing. But ultimately, like, the problem here that you're seeing, because there's another scene where they try to make you sympathetic with Celeste. And it's this scene where... um, It's after she turned into a wolf and killed the janitor guy. Yeah, so Jan... As a member of the tribe who is working for Dr. Morris, he tries to basically cover up some evidence because Celeste killed Dr. Morris in werewolf form. And he fucks up by leaving his fingerprints fucking everywhere while he's trying to destroy evidence, which defeats the purpose. So the cops are looking for him, so he tries to hide out with the tribe, and they're like, yeah, my dude, you cannot hide out here. You're going to leave the cops right here. You have to leave. So they kind of exile him, but then, of course, Celeste goes after him as a wolf and eats him up. And there's a scene after that where she's crying about having to kill Jan. And there's this, like, implication that she doesn't like being a werewolf. Like, they're trying to bring some of that werewolf tragedy into it. But then in the whole third act, Nina Folk is just going for straight-up, like, villain. And she does a good job. I actually really like Celeste as a villain. But it's incongruous with this idea of her crying earlier. And I think all of these ideas could have worked... I think a lot of this movie could have worked, but I think if there's a central flaw, other than the lack of research, which unfortunately is, you know, has a lot more to do with this being a 1940s Hollywood B-movie than being a problem specific to this particular movie. Yeah. Um, If there's a particular specific problem I would lay at this movie's feet, it's that the script focuses on the wrong fucking characters. Yeah, we've had this problem... Several times now. Like, just last week. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the biggest flaws in this movie is Steve Crane as Bob Morris. Yeah. Now, admittedly, Crane had little to no acting experience, and this was his first film. But he's noticeably worse than the average cardboard horror hero. He mumbles all of his lines, and there's no, there's nothing behind his lines, even. Yeah, there's no emotion, there's nothing. He's reading cue cards, you know? Basically. And it really just highlights how much, like, acting is a job. Yes. And you need to have something. If you don't have experience, you usually have some kind of charm. Right. Or, like... Charisma. Charisma, spark to what you're doing. And we've seen when people have... Both, a.k.a. John Carradine, Bob is boring. He doesn't have any kind of charm. He, he's here because he's fucking Lana Turner. How did he convince Lana Turner to fuck him? That's yeah, my real I question. Don't, I don't because, get what she sees. The thing she is, probably is, saw like a, a mature man with a steady paycheck, and then he quit his job to move to Hollywood. I mean, you know... I could understand, like, okay, he's handsome, whatever. I mean, he's... He's not. He's not. He has this... Anyways, I won't fucking throw shade at this guy who's been dead for 40 years. (laughs) Um, But, like, you think of other actors who were not actors. Like, we just, the other night, watched a documentary about George Lazenby, a guy who was not an actor and was picked out of nowhere to play James Bond. And he's good as James Bond because he has that... Charm. That charm and that charisma. This guy has nothing... Um, and so it becomes a big problem that the movie uses him as a focal point character. The other f- big focal point characters in the movie, who we barely mentioned, are the cops. They drive a lot of the plot. We're following their investigation of Dr. Morris's death a lot of the time. Which I did 
like. Like, I didn't mention it in the plot summary because, honestly, I try to, like, keep things, like, fairly, like, to the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Because I have a tendency to go off on, like, too much minute detail. Right. Um, But these cops, like, there are times where we're watching them go and get the fingerprints, watching them go do, like, police work. Yeah, they're doing, like, CSI shit. Yeah, and it felt reminiscent of Dark Eyes of London. But, it was like a police procedural. But too many of the cops were supposed to be the comedic players. They are exceptionally incompetent. Yeah. And they have two personalities. There's the lead cop, played by Barton McLean, and his personality is the same personality Barton McLean always has. He's just, you know, Rah, come on, boys, we're going to go shoot up a bunch of people. Um, and then everybody else is like, oh, gosh, chief, I'm too scared to do my job. Like, they're either idiots or they're grumps. And it wouldn't be so bad if they weren't using so much screen time as the primary movers of the story. So the movie focuses on these male characters who are either boring, unpleasant, or stupid. And it's a real shame because Celeste and Elsa, for my money, are the movie's most interesting characters. And the scenes that they are in are the most dramatically satisfying you know, the scene that they have together is one of the best in the movie, and they just both get sidelined. And both could have worked as a protagonist. Like, Elsa's the person from the old country who understands how dangerous everything is, and nobody will listen to her because, you know, she's a woman and whatever, and she knows the real horror and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, you know, Celeste is, you know, oh, I have this legacy from my mother of being like a monster and I have to defend my people but like I've fallen in love with this dude from the other side and do I hate myself and blah 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 like like cat people works because it gives a shit about Irena right yeah and the thing is is like it's it's so funny like Celeste and Elsa are so inherently interesting as characters that it breaks through even the fact that the screenwriter's don't care about them. You know what I mean? Like, they they almost have to write them well, because they can't not, because they're too interesting. They just don't get enough actual scenes with them as focal points to really bring out what's in their characters. And I think this also speaks to how well Nina Folk and Osa Masson, maybe not as well as Nina Folk, but, like, they're both giving a lot to these roles. Agreed. Yeah. I think um, one thing I did like about the movie... Um, and, and, and I think I'll say a lot of what I liked about this movie comes down to what they were trying to do. Mm. And a lot of what I don't like about this movie comes down to kind of how those attempts went. <laughs> like I, 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 I admire the movie's ambitions more than I admire its execution. Sure. And a good example of that is they do have some legitimate attempts to learn some lessons from the Val Luton movies about how to construct scary visuals. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of really good shadowy sort of cinematography um, or a lot of good like camera angles and a lot of good uses of different kinds of framing. But it often feels like Cry of the Werewolf was using Luton's methods without 100% understanding why they worked. Yeah. You know, like there's a scene, it's one of the best scenes in the movie. There's a scene where Celeste is tracking Morris through the basement of the mortuary. And the thing about Celeste is, like, not only is she a female werewolf, and not only is her lycanthropy hereditary, but also she very explicitly can transform at will, Mm -hmm. and there isn't a hybrid form. She's either uh, a woman 
or she is a wolf. And what we have on screen in the movie is a wolf. And so the movie does this thing where she's tracking him through the darkness. And we see just like her heels clip-clopping against the ground. And then it cuts to Morris being all scared. And then it cuts back and it's just the padded feet of the wolf. And the claws clip-clopping against the ground. And, you know, and at that point things are still filled with tension and mystery. That's like midway through the movie. And it was really cool. In the climax, once we like totally know what's up and Morris knows what up, what's up like in the mortuary Morris doesn't know that Celeste is the werewolf or whatever in the climax he does but we're still doing these shots where we're just seeing people's feet mm-hmm. and it's like you don't need to keep just showing us people's feet to create suspense when we know who they are and the people in the room know who they are because they can see them yeah it just got confusing and, as to what the action was and cloaking everything in darkness works a lot better when you don't have to use a flashlight so that we can expose the actors to film that's then kind of like haphazardly following them around the room. Like, the way that you do a shadowy room in a scene is you don't use key lights. You use edge lighting and you use backlighting, maybe. But you still use lights. You don't just turn all the lights off and then have the camera op, like the second camera assistant, follow the leads with like a flashlight across the room. (laughs) Like, Jesus. So, you know, it's like, so they had the right ideas, but like they, they aren't, it's not an experienced enough crew or maybe a crew with enough time and money to actually pull off these ideas. Well, I think it also speaks to the fact that it's the director's first film, Mm -hmm. you know? Sure. Part of the way things are lit and filmed is, with help from the cinematographer, but the director's probably like, this is what I want, uh, so turn off all the lights. Yeah. And it speaks to, you know, again, I think that there was an attempt here to make a good horror movie. Um, And I actually think there are some scenes in this movie that I really think work really well. Yeah. Um, The discovery of... So right after Dr. Morris dies, the first person to find his body is this guy who works at the museum, Peter. And he finds, I think he's meant to have walked in on Celeste in wolf form killing Dr. Morris, but we don't see any of that. What we see is the cops finding Peter, and he's gone totally crazy. And he's just in this all darkened room, and the cops shine a flashlight on him, and it's just like him in this darkened room kind of like, stumbling towards them, muttering to himself. And that, I thought, was really creepy. The confrontation between Elsa and Celeste, where uh, Celeste puts her, you know, spell on Elsa to turn her evil or whatever, I thought that scene was really well written and really well performed. Had a lot of electricity. Uh, Celeste stalking Bob in the mortuary basement's really good. There are some parts of the finale where they're running around through the house and doing stuff, and the wolf is mauling people and stuff that I thought were really good. But... It's all just kind of spoiled by this weak, confused script that's centered around the wrong characters. Yeah. So where would you like to rank this? Because I definitely agree that this film has some good parts, has some good scenes, has some bad actors, Mm -hmm. and the script is... Well, I don't even want to... I don't 100% want to bash the script. I would. I just mean because it's not researched. You oh, know sure. I mean, like our, our our whole opening part. I just think that what I would say about the script is the same thing I'd say about the overall movie, which is it had a lot of good ideas, 
but I think the people writing it or the people in the crew were not skilled or experienced enough to actually pull off the things that they were attempting, right? Sure. I'm going to admit, I think maybe this range that I picked out was too high. Okay. Because I picked out this range before the discussion, and the discussion has kind of brought my feelings on this movie down a bit. You've kind of talked down my attitude. I was giving this movie a lot of slack, because even though I thought the racism in it was pretty harmful, and I didn't like how poorly researched it was, and the you know acting was bad, I thought that a lot of this was admirable enough that it could go above some things. I started by looking for where we have Return of the Vampire, because that was sort of the immediate predecessor from Columbia, right? Like, this was a direct follow-up. Yeah, and I think they have, like, a little bit of an Easter egg with it, with the skeleton that has the stake in it in the vampire room. Yeah, absolutely. And Return of the Vampire, we have all the way up at number 16, and I was like, welp! (laughs) And, like, looking around in that area, this doesn't go anywhere around this area. But I started just kind of looking down, right? Like, just, okay, looking down, looking down. So I hit... Number 29, which is, the, which is the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde, which is also a movie that has problems that are sort of resulting from a central conflict between what the movie wants to do and what the movie can do. Sure. Um, and I thought, well, maybe this is better than that. Maybe. The 41 Jekyll and Hyde also has the problem of not being very scary, and I think this movie had some good, good scary stuff in it. So I kind of made that a ceiling, and then I kept making my way down to find my floor, and I kept going down, and I hit 40, which is Captive Wild Woman. And I said, well, at least the women in this movie get to talk, and a third of the movie isn't stock footage, and I don't have to witness any animal cruelty. So I made Captive Wild Woman my floor. <laughs> but I'm... I'm after the discussion we've had, I'm kind of fully willing to go lower than this. Yeah, because my range is much, much, much lower than that. Um, I will say, I think the closest we get to quote-unquote animal cruelty is the opening credits uh, show a wolf who clearly just has like half a jar of peanut butter up on its like mouth, so it's like licking and slobbering all over. You know what they actually did? Um, so the wolf in the opening credits who's kind of like doing its mouth up and down, like, rah, 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 and, like, opening and closing its mouth, they've actually got a elastic band wrapped around its muzzle so that it can't open its mouth all the way, and it forces it closed every time it tries to open it. Okay, so then that is actual animal cruelty. I uh, was doing, like, air quotes around, like, giving a, a wolf peanut butter because that's kind of a treat. It's also a standard method used to make animals, quote-unquote, talk in movies. Yeah, that's why I brought it referenced up. it. Um, but the 40s is always worse than you'll expect. Yeah, I am very upset, that poor wolf. Okay, so where are you looking? Yeah, I just went like down the list and was like, is it is this better than Dark Eyes of London? No, Dark Eyes of London was a pretty good police procedural. Uh, what about Voodoo Man? They both had like crazy machinations around Voodoo. Uh, no, Voodoo Man was more fun. Okay, let's keep going. And then I hit Supernatural. Mm-hmm. Which did feature a woman. Mm-hmm. She did talk, and she kicked ass. So for me, I would put Supernatural as my ceiling. Okay. With um, Cry of the Werewolf going below that, but above the Vampire Bat. Now that being said, the Vampire Bat is really neat in how it shows like the 
irrationality of mob justice, mm-hmm. um, which I think is interesting to compare with this film, which partakes in the irrationality around the intensely negative stereotypes around Roma, which like actively are used, as we said, to fuel the extermination camps. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's why that's kind of like the upper part. So I wasn't sure with Vampire Bat. And then I hit Genuina. Right, another lady villain movie. Yeah, and I thought it was kind of interesting to compare Genuina as a villain with Celeste right. as a villain. Um, both are trying to be portrayed a little bit um, sympathetically, um, a little bit more three-dimensionally than just, like, pure evil or pure good. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then below that is the 1926 The Bat. And for me, that's my floor. Yeah, this is definitely better than The Bat. I would, If you came to me and you said, we're either going to watch Cry of the Werewolf tonight or we're going to watch The Bat, I'd be like, yeah, can we watch Cry of the Werewolf again? Sure. Um, so my range is 71 to 74. So way further down than yours and actually pretty narrow. I think... The, it's the comparison with Genuina that kind of trips me up because, so what was Genuina? Genuina was like a priestess from some, you know, African tribe or whatever who happened to also be a white lady who gets like captured and put in like a terrarium by a rich dude. Yeah. And then she breaks out and kills him. Yeah. And then she basically just like hypnotizes men to like get stuff. Yeah, and, and then they have a bit of a, like, a triad, a polyamory triad. Right, where it's just these, like, dudes that she's hypnotized into, like, being her slaves, and then eventually the town just kind of turns against her and, like, mob violences her? Yeah. Okay, Celeste is the daughter of a, okay. At least confirmed werewolf. Daughter right. of a werewolf. Daughter of a werewolf. Can I just back up one second? Okay. Here's the thing about the Marie Latour story that makes no sense to me. And I get you're going to say, the thing, like the one thing, but here's the thing. So she lived in the house, right? Mm -hmm. And the museum is now the house. Like, this is the house she lived in when she killed her, her, her husband, and now we've turned it into this museum. Yeah. And they find her crypt in the same house in the museum. So I guess my question is, because the story is, she kills her husband, and then she fleed, and no one ever saw her ever again. And then we know that she meets up with the um, Traega in the bayou and becomes their werewolf queen. And then she dies. So then the Traega, like, snuck her body back into the basement of her old own home and built a secret passage from it to this other room without anybody noticing? So here's the thing. I think this film isn't completely good in, <laughs> in how it does a chronology but um, the way that they talk the way that the Triaga talk about their dead like they specifically say that everyone who's part of this tribe uh, outside of this one month of the year they go off they do whatever but then they come back for this winter celebration whatever and this is the only month when they bury their dead. Right. It's like how <laughs> salmon swim upstream to the place that they were born to spawn. The Traeger returned to the bayou once a year to bury their dead. And it's specifically at this special 
burial place. Right. Which is what Celeste is trying to protect. Yeah, so they yeah, also... it's the crypt of where her mom is buried, but that's what makes it important for all of the other uh, Traega to be buried there. I think they say that there's like another entrance, which then begs the question of like, why did Celeste need to break in to do whatever? Um, but also because it's built underneath the house, I think that implies that Marie Latour was part of the tribe while she was still living there. It's super confusing because, yeah, I think they also refer to the crypt as, like, being their, like, temple at one point. Yeah. And it's, like, none of, like, it just doesn't make any fucking sense. Anyway, okay. (laughs) So, yeah, so Celeste is the daughter of a werewolf, and she's the princess of this uh, tribe of Roma, and she can't be with men because of a reason that is never given. And she's real pissed about it. So, she's going to get her rival in love to kill the guy she loves with a spell. And also defend the sacred burial grounds of her people as a wolf. So, which of these two female villains is better? Has the more compelling motivation? The more compelling characterization? Like, who who do we like more here? I think probably Celeste. She's given a bit more time to show what her motivations are, if not say what her motivations are. Genuina, that's a silent film, and it's also cut to shreds in post. Um, But a lot of what Genuina's motivations are, we had to insinuate. Right. As well as go based off of the trope that they're using of the dangerous, sexy lady. The other thing, like, if I can give this movie points for anything that it will win out over Genuina, it's that this movie has a scene between two women. Yes. Like, the scene between Celeste and Elsa kind of makes this movie for me. Yeah. Now, it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Right, because they're still talking about a dude. But, I mean, this is pretty good for 1944, you know? Yeah. I mean, the only way it could be better is if Val Luton fucking made this movie. Yes. Like, this is a movie (laughs) that so obviously wants to be a Val Luton movie. Like, the actress who plays Elsa, like, might as well be uh, Elizabeth Russell. Like, they, they want this to be a Val Luton movie, and they just don't know how to be Val Luton. They just don't know how, and it just becomes a mess. Uh, Okay, so let's do Below the Vampire Bat Above Genuina. Cool. All right. So entering the list at number 73, Cry of the Werewolf from 1944, directed by Henry Levin. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes, the many episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can reach out to us through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can contact us through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can access the podcast through our RSS feed on any podcasting app of your choice. If the service that you listen to podcasts through allows you to leave a rating or a review, we would very much appreciate if you did that. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. 
Sharing the show with your friends, either through social media or face-to-face, is another way that you can help us out. Word of mouth helps podcast audiences grow, and we're always looking for more creatures of the night to join our hellish brigade. A more uh, concrete way that you can help us out is by heading over to our Patreon on patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for just $1 a month. $1 patrons get thanked on the show, but there are higher levels of donation as well. At $5 a month, you'll get access to weekly bonus audio that consists of cut content from previous episodes. This might be jokes that didn't make the cut. This might be bloopers. Or this might be long sections of research that we did that ultimately ended up not being pertinent, but are still neat. Yeah. At $10 a month, you get access to um, writing that I do, that I put up on the Patreon. Uh, This is usually horror short fiction, but I'm also going to start doing like little mini reviews and essays about maybe more modern movies or like just generic horror topics um, to put up on the Patreon as well. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing a fifth bonus episode every month that talks about horror-adjacent movies. Stuff like the dark universe of Tom Cruise and the Mummy and Luke Evans (laughs) and Dracula Untold. Oh, can you imagine if we did... um... That Van Helsing movie. Oh, I would love to do that as a horror adjacent movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah with absolutely. Wolverine. Yes, yeah. Hugh Jackman. Yeah. yeah, where Van Helsing is the worst thing in the movie called Van Helsing. So that's Patreon.com/slash Scream Scene Podcast. Uh, so I remember you mentioned at the top of the show what we're watching next week, but remind me, I don't remember. So next week, Sarah, we are watching the other half of the Supernatural Double Horror Show. And that is The Soul of a Monster from 1944, Uh, a movie that, judging by the way Columbia programmed these, was the cheaper and worse of the two. Oh no. I mean, the title sounds very interesting. I think it could be like the title of like a horror drama, you know what I mean? But also, sometimes these titles just feel like the writers or the marketing department is just throwing darts on, like, a board that goes, like, the, and then, like, noun, and then, like, of the, and then, like, <laughs> monster type, you know? Oh, man. We should do, um, we should make a Mad Libs, but for horror movie titles. Or, like, one of those things where it's, like, your horror movie title by, like, what's your day, month, and year yeah, you were born in. Like, what horror movie fun. title you get. Yeah, we'll put that up on Twitter or some shit. (laughs) All right, see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.